You're listening to the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast, the official podcast of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. We're bringing you the very best from the APSF newsletter and website, as well as the latest information in perioperative patient safety. Thanks for joining us. So today we have our first ever anesthesia patient safety interview with Dr. Alan Mary, who is in Auckland, New Zealand, which is pretty close to me since I'm now in Greymouth, New Zealand. And it was nice to be able to schedule an interview where we are in the same time zone. Dr. Mary, thank you for joining us on the show today. And I thought we'd just kick off the show um, by having you introduce yourself and telling us a little bit about your current role in anesthesia. Well, I'm, I'm Alan Leary. Uh, I, I'm at the stage of my career where I'm actually in semi-retirement. Well, it's not quite that. I'm in progressive retirement. One of my messages about patient safety is you do need to proactively manage the latter part of your career. And I've, I've done that by taking progressive steps into uh, less demanding, clinically less demanding, not necessarily less demanding work. I've taken on more administrative responsibilities, but I've changed from, uh, you know, being up at three in the morning trying to, to manage a dissection and, and all the stresses involved with that progressively to stopping anesthesia per se and only doing chronic pain work because I've always actually done chronic pain as well as anesthesia, an odd, an odd mixture to be a cardiac anesthesiologist and also do chronic pain, but I have done. And then at the end of last year, I stopped. I finished up with clinical work, and this year I'm basically continuing research and PhD supervision and other things like that with the university, with a plan of finishing completely at the end of this year. So I'm in that sort of phase of progressive uh, retirement. But my my core uh, clinical career has been as a cardiac anesthesiologist. Uh, and I did that for many, many years at the Green Lane unit, uh, first of all at Green Lane Hospital, but that moved about 20 years ago to Auckland Hospital and became what's called the Level 4 Green Lane unit. And I've been integrated into that and I still feel part of that department. That's my sort of real home, if you like, uh, and, uh, uh, um, and that's what I've done. But I've also been involved with uh, research in the university and with uh, in more recent years with quality and safety more generally in the role of I was the inaugural chair of New Zealand's Health Quality and Safety Commission, which uh, is about quality and safety across the entire field of healthcare and disability, actually, uh, which uh, uh, is much more broadly than anesthesia. And that was a huge learning curve. Uh, and very interesting. Thinking back to when you first got interested in anesthesia patient safety, was there something that kind of motivated that path or patient story or something that kind of put you on that trajectory? Yes, there certainly was. Uh, I said I wasn't, I was actually thinking of research as a respiratory respiratory physiology direction. I did do some work there, but it, it, it was uh, hard work that, and uh, around about that time when I was a new uh, consultant, cardiac anesthesiologist, we had two cases, uh, fairly close succession in New Zealand, where 
an anesthesiologist have a tragic loss of a patient associated with an error. And in each case, the anesthesiologist was charged with manslaughter. It was the second one of those that really upset me because it involved uh, an anesthesiologist who had come to New Zealand and was working in a small town, Port Sikawiti, uh, who at the end of anesthetizing uh, a patient for a gallbladder operation, the, the patient developed trismus during the emergence. And he wanted to give her a drug called doxapram, which is an analeptic drug, which isn't much used these days. Uh, but was fashionable in, in the UK where he had come from. Uh, but unbeknown to him, somebody had placed in the drug drawer where the doxapram should be, they had placed an ampoule of dopamine. And so he drew up an entire file of dopamine and injected it. That precipitated a cardiac arrest. He managed to resuscitate the patient and transfer her to Waikato Hospital, which is a much bigger hospital with an intensive care. Then he went back and identified his problem from the empty ampoule. He suddenly then realized what had happened. And he immediately phoned the intensive care and his own medical director to tell them about it. And on the basis of his own honesty, he ended up being charged and subsequently convicted of manslaughter. He was discharged without penalty, but he was nevertheless convicted of what is really the second most serious crime in the books. And it was apparent to me, two things were apparent to me, that I had made medication errors myself. In fact, I had a couple of frights, but I'm very pleased that the consequences were, there were no consequences to the patient, but where I spent some very worried hours uh, knowing that I had uh, given the wrong drug. And uh, the, so it is clear to me that medication errors are intrinsic to anesthesia and that I might well, well, that I did make them, in fact, from time to time. And the other thing, of course, you need for a manslaughter charge is a dead patient. And when you're working in cardiac anesthesia, uh, the mortality rate is, in those days, it was at least, it was, it was more than 2% overall, but even for coronaries, it would have been 2%. And so I became very uh, anxious about uh, the setting. And uh, that led me to engage in uh, establishing a group in New Zealand called the New Zealand Medical Law Reform Group. And um, in the process of advocating that making a mistake should not be seen as a crime, it became apparent to me that although I still think I'm passionately convinced that that's true, I believe we do make too many mistakes. I think we've improved a bit, but we still do. And in those days, I think we really did. And so it became apparent to me that changing the law was important, and we did achieve that. But that uh, more important, actually, was to try and improve the safety of anesthesia. And so it sort of opened up a whole new area of human factors and reasons why people make mistakes, cognition, how people think. And that's become my passion just through that path and really changed my career. Well, speaking of medication errors, and this is a very important topic that we address um, on the APSF website as well and one of our priorities. Um, do you ever think we'll get to a time when there are zero medication errors? Well, of course, uh, I've always talked about towards uh, 
irreducible minimum, but it's that minimum will probably never be zero, but it should be very much closer to, you know, the sort of safety that Six Sigma thinks about. Uh, so essentially very close to zero. I think the barrier to that is mostly cultural, uh, that if what we know today is enough to make a very substantial difference if anesthesiologists and their departments and the administration of hospital hospitals would genuinely engage in the uh, commitment to the changes that need to occur to the use of a technology that is available and the um, uh, prioritization of that as an important objective. The trouble with it is, is that actually the number of, of the, it's, the, it's the loose linkage. We probably injure quite a lot more people than we realize from education error. But the, many of those errors are never identified and don't come back to the anesthesiologist. One area where we have improved massively in New Zealand and probably everywhere is in the administration of prophylactic antibiotics. And that's been done through the checklist, of course. And um, I think that's, that will have made a difference. But you can imagine that if you omitted that antibiotic and the patient developed an infection, that infection would likely manifest three or four weeks post-operatively. And the chances that someone would track back and say, but wait a minute, this antibiotic was omitted, uh, are very low. And even then to prove causation that the antibiotic being omitted made a difference would be difficult because it's more of a statistical thing than a one-on-one link. And so I think that we're very sheltered from the consequences of most of our errors. Most often when we make an error, there is no consequence. And I think that's the big barrier to to engagement in, in, in change. And the idea that the changes that need to happen cost a bit of money is also a barrier. And like you said, require kind of um, all of the stakeholders to be involved in working towards that goal too. It can't just be the and it's worth remembering that medication error invade is is pervasive in healthcare more generally. It's it's a particular issue for us because we it's our job as the administration of, of dangerous medications. It's what we do all the time. It's a core part of anesthesia. Uh, whereas uh, for most other parts of medicine, it's a smaller part of it. But in fact, medication errors occur right throughout healthcare. I want to just switch gears slightly to talk about um, the role of simulation and the impact that has had on anesthesia patient safety. Um, Have you used simulation to kind of work towards improved patient safety at your institution? Oh, absolutely. So I'd like to to acknowledge uh, Dr. Stuart Henderson, who brought the first stimulator into New Zealand in Wellington and set up the Wellington Simulation Center uh, in the very early days. And we in Auckland, a group of us, got engaged with the Wellington Group and worked with them initially and then ultimately established some simulation facilities in Auckland, including the Simulation Centre for Patient Safety, which is a very strong centre based at the University of Auckland, which I was involved in setting up with Jane Torrey and Jennifer Willow and other people. And progressively, we have increased the use of simulation uh, as a core part of training. So within anesthesia per se, 
we have the uh, effective management of anesthetic crisis, the EMAC courses, which are now integrated into every trainee's work, and many seniors also take part. And one of the innovative things that we did was the seniors and the juniors take part together in these simulations, which is very challenging for seniors, I can tell you, because I've done that. And, uh, you know, your, your actual book knowledge might not be quite the same as a, as a good resident, uh, but you do have experience. And so it is an interesting mix of things. And, we, and we've always encouraged this idea of the whole team. And more recently, uh, with Jennifer Weller, Dr. Jennifer Weller, or Professor Weller's uh, leadership, we've been running the Networks in, 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 in Initiative, which you, you may or may not be aware of, but it's been a whole nation whole of team simulation training. So we actually bring in the, uh, the, the anesthesiologists, of course, but also the surgeons and the nurses. And they're all participants. They're not acting. And we've managed to create very realistic surgical models so that the surgeons can engage in surgically meaningful activities. And we have a long tradition of using very high fidelity draping and instruments and, in fact, real medications. We are very dedicated to the notion that if you're going to do simulation, you should be using the same ampules that you would be using in the clinical setting. Otherwise, you're, you're not really simulating the, the job. And that has actually really been, it's been going some years now with support of ACC funding, the Accident Compensation uh, uh, Corporation. And it's, it's really got traction uh, as, a, as a movement towards whole of team training. And I think that's made a huge difference to safety. Hard to prove, by the way, hard to prove. Measurement of safety is difficult. But I think on a just face validity basis, you can just see the changes occurring. I imagine it probably goes a long way to helping improve communication in the theater as well. And for that team that interacts in the simulation center, then when they go to interact and have challenging conversations in the operating theater, they've already done it once in the simulation. So it might come a little bit easier with better communication. That's correct. And what the team has done is they've actually moved to in-situ simulation as much as possible. We do some of the instructor training within the main simulation center, but the majority of the simulation training is done in people's own operating rooms. And that, uh, that is fantastic for lots of reasons, one of which is that we identify latent problems. You know, an obvious thing is nobody quite knows where to plug in the defibrillator. So then you can, as a direct result of having uh, done that in their own unit, you can actually identify things that they can improve immediately. But that's not, that's a secondary, that is secondary to communication and to culture. So trying to generate a team culture where it's safe to speak up, where people actually understand that each other, each person of the team does have knowledge and expertise that can contribute to safety and creating that idea of working together is, is the core. Absolutely. We've been uh, talking a lot on our um, APSF team about the culture of safety. And um, I've heard some fantastic talks about that in the past year. Um, but it seems like something that's definitely coming to light more, um, more and more as a way to improve safety is to start with this foundation of culture of safety and that psychological safety where everyone on the team feels safe and empowered to speak up when they need to. Um, and that the primary goal is patient safety then. And I'd just like to say that my own view is that this culture in New Zealand in that regard is actually very good. 
Uh, and certainly my impression traveling around the world is that, that obviously there's forum for improvement, but it is good. We're, we're very fortunate that everybody buys into the importance of it, really, with very few exceptions. I noticed that right away. We do um, like team team meetings before each of our lists and discuss kind of important issues about equipment and the patients and then um, and then have a debriefing afterwards if we need to, if there was a piece of equipment that wasn't functioning well or, you know, a break in the day where we an unanticipated and kind of interruption in the day. And then um, the check-in when we first get into the room and the timeout. And then the one, another thing that I've noticed that's been really great is the sign out at the end of the case too, where it kind of states like what we did in the case, did any events happen that were unanticipated, um, anything we need to tell recovery, anything new and expected. And it's just such a, it doesn't take long. It's really short most of the time. And we don't have to even say that much, but it really goes a long way to making sure the whole team is on the same page. I'm pleased you've discovered that you've had that impression. And I'd just like to acknowledge Professor Simon Mitchell's work in this. He was working, we've done this a bit together, but he's had a great leadership role in progressively improving the implementation of the checklist. And in particular, moving to the wall-mounted checklist, not having a tick box approach and having the rotated leadership so that the three phases are led by the three different groups. And I think that has been instrumental in improving engagement and getting the message across. Thank you so much to Mary for joining me on the show today. The good news is that this is only part one. That's right. We will be back next week with more of my conversation with Mary. So mark your calendars. If you have any questions or comments from today's show, please email us at podcast at APSF.org. Please keep in mind that the information in this show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical or legal advice. We hope that you will visit APSF.org for detailed information and check out the show notes for links to all the topics we discussed today. We also hope that you will connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. We can continue the conversation about anesthesia patient safety all week long while waiting for the next podcast to drop. Until next time, stay vigilant so that no one shall be harmed by anesthesia care.